Good morning and welcome to our gathering. It's so good to be in the house of the Lord and, and we have a lot of people here today and that's, that's always real exciting. More people getting to, to be blessed by, by this congregation and, and by all that God does here. At the beginning of our Ephesians series, um, I basically said that chapters 1, 2, and 3 have to do with orthodoxy, which is basically Christian belief or Christian doctrine. And that chapters 4, 5, and 6 have to do with orthopraxy, which basically means Christian living. It's like living out those doctrines, living in light of those doctrines. So the first half of the book is about orthodoxy. The second half of the book is about orthopraxy, Christian living. So I'm actually excited to announce that we're crossing over now into chapter 4, where we'll begin to look at orthopraxy. Um, This is kind of where... Maybe, maybe we could say the rubber will meet the road where the book gets more practical. It doesn't mean that there isn't doctrine here, but Paul is really what he's going to do is begin to exhort the Ephesians to, to live out the Christian faith. And so at the same time, we're going to be exhorted to do that. And so it's going to get practical. Um, I, I don't know. I'm excited about it. I've been, I've been waiting to get to this point. Now, you know, we need to be mindful, though, of some things as we progress, as we engage and begin to move into 4, 5, and 6. We need to be mindful of a few things so that we can steer clear of compulsion, so that we can steer clear of works righteousness, like the earning mentality, trying to earn something from God. We need to be mindful of some things before we start looking at all this awesome, amazing truth and all these exhortations to do something, we need to be mindful of some things before we do that. We do want to avoid works righteousness. That means trying to earn. We do want to avoid false religion, the same kind of thing. And, and one of the ways or one of the things that we can be mindful of or remember is something that we've been saying from the beginning, and that is that Ephesians was written to believers. It was written to Christians. It wasn't written to non-believers. In fact, I'd have a hard time saying that any book in the Bible was written to unbelievers because they don't have the Spirit and can't understand the truth. And so every book in the Bible is literally written for God's people. Now, there's instruction in the Word of God on how to minister to and love and care for unbelievers. That's most certainly there. And there's God's law in those things, so there's some special dynamics there. But for the most part... We need to remember that Ephesians was written to a church as if it were RHC, God's letter to RHC. This was God's letter to the church at at Ephesus and in the churches in the surrounding area. So that's number one. We need to remember that. We're dealing with believers. These exhortations, these encouragements, these commands are for believers. They're not for unbelievers. And thus... Meaning that 4, 5, and 6, it's only Christians who can actually do these things. It's only the Christian who can do these things in a way that honors the Lord and and glorifies God and fills his own heart with joy and benefits culture and community. So the book was written to Christians, and 4, 5, and 6 have to do with how the Christian should live, not how the unbeliever should live. It's just imperative that we... Uh, continue to to remind ourselves of that. It is the believer who can actually do 4, 5, and 6. 
Why? Because he has the Holy Spirit, because he's a new creation, because he loves God, because he loves the commands of God, the precepts of God, because it's his joy to obey. You see, for the unbeliever, none of that is true. We have to recognize that 4, 5, and 6 are a possibility for believers because believers have the very power of God inside of them. We have the power of God in our lives. The power of God empowers our obedience and motivates our obedience. Not to mention that it is also the desire of the Christian to obey and to do these things. He and she, or he or she, actually wants to obey. He or she gets kind of excited when we hear these exhortations and and these encouragements because, you know, we're always kind of measuring our lives and we realize we fall short in certain areas and, and we all, as believers, basically long for some instruction from God. And so, and that's exactly kind of our attitude. It should be that way about this as we engage in this. In other words, you know, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be compulsed to try to do these things because you want to get more favor from God or because you believe it'll cause Him to love you more or to accept you more or any of that. You're already loved as much as you can be. You're already as maxed out on acceptance God cherishes you as a believer. And so when you hear these commands and these things, these imperatives, don't think to yourself, well, gosh, I have to do more of these things so I can make God happy so I can be happy. No, when you hear these things, it should trigger the spirit in you that should motivate you to kind of move forward and to engage in these things. We shouldn't be compulsed or to try to do them for the wrong reason with the wrong motive. Uh, Another way to, to put it would be that It's because of the finished work of Jesus Christ that we can begin to obey and live as Christians. If we fail to understand that Christ's work came first, as illustrated in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and that our work and obedience follows, as illustrated in 4, 5, and 6, we will engage in works righteousness, compulsion, false religion. So really... Chapters 1, 2, and 3 have to do with what Christ has done and secured for you. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 have to do with your response. That's probably one of the best ways to look at this book. And I would say probably most of Paul's books. They're all written in this way where he unpacks the work of Christ and then he begins to unpack our work. And you will never see them in a reverse order. Paul never begins with, here's what you must do and here's how Christ will respond to you. It's always, here's what Christ has done, and here's how you as a believer must respond. So we need to keep these things in our minds. This was written to us. It was written to Christians, and that we have the power and ability to obey and to do these things, to move forward in this letter because we are saved, because we have the very Spirit of God. As we begin to unpack the next three chapters, I want you to think to yourself, I can do what this text or what this scripture or what this passage says because of what Christ has done for me and in me. These are the kinds of things I want you to entertain in your mind. I want you to say, I can do these things because I am a Christian, because Christ has already saved me and empowered me to obey. These are the things that I want you to entertain in your minds. I don't want you to think to yourself, I have to do what the scriptures say because I want to get something from God or he's ticked off at me or it'll love, he'll love me more if I do it. That really literally is anti-gospel thinking. 
And, and it, the scary thing is the church is just filled with it today. Churches are filled with all the commands and you and you and you and you must do this and you must do that. And if you want this, you got to do that. And it's just all garbage. It's all anti-gospel preaching. The gospel is the good news of what Christ has done on our behalf. And we simply respond. And so will you just do me the biggest favor and commit yourself to remembering these things? This was written to believers. I can do this because I am a believer. Will you commit yourself to it? It's okay if you say yes because... I don't really want to go through 4, 5, and 6 if we're all going to just kind of turn to ourselves and our own strength and our own ability or that we're all trying to strong-arm God into getting something. That's not what we're about as a church. That's not Christianity. That's not what the Bible teaches. So we all agree. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. You can do 4, 5, and 6. And as you do, remember 1, 2, and 3, chapters 1, 2, and 3, what Christ has done, okay? It's like my little disclaimer right? You know? It just scares the heck out of me because we're all prone to going to works righteousness. I know I am too. So I don't want to do that. Now, we're going to be looking at today chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. Chapter 4 verses 1 through 6, okay? So uh, I'll read it out loud and then uh, we'll pray one more time and then we'll, we'll get to work, okay? Chapter 4 verses 1 through 6. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Father, open our hearts and minds to the truth now. Guard us against works righteousness and compulsion. May we not be thinking to ourselves, i got to do all these things so I can have a better standing with God or any of that, Lord. You have secured for us salvation and inheritance and the power of the Spirit and all the spiritual blessings we've read about in this amazing book. And it's in light of those things that we can move forward. It's in light of the finished work that we can move forward. So guard our hearts and and help us today to um, draw nigh to you, to draw close to you, and to desire through the Spirit to obey. Because we have been made new creations. We are your children. And so we give you this time in our focus and we pray that you would be glorified in all that is said here now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's begin to unpack this wonderful section. Verse 1, verse 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Stop right there. First thing we notice, friends, is I therefore, that statement. And, and what that does is that is a turning point phrase. That is a transition statement for three chapters straight. Paul has been unpacking the great doctrines of the Christian faith. The, you know, he's been unpacking, this is who you are in Christ. This is what you have in Christ. This is what is coming to you 
in and through Christ, right? This is what he's been talking about in chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's all the work of Christ and all of those fabulous doctrines that have to do with that. And then, bam, right here we get to this particular text, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, just the first couple of words, bam, he transitions. He's now going to take and turn his attention and their attention to something else. It's as if he wrote in chapter 1, 2, and 3, this is who you are, this is what you have, this is what is coming to you, and then right here at the beginning of this chapter, now this is what is required of you. This is what God wants you to do. This is who God wants you to be. This is how God wants you to live. I've told you who you are. I've told you what you have. I told you what's coming to you. This is all yours. It's all secured by the Holy Spirit for you. It's done. It's your inheritance. And right here he says, here's the point. Here's what God commands of you and desires from you. It is a transition here. And notice also how Paul reminded them again of his current situation, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul was locked up in Rome for serving the Lord Jesus when he wrote Ephesians. He was a prisoner when he wrote this letter. He wrote a handful of letters during this imprisonment in Rome. And I like how it says, a prisoner for the Lord, not of the Lord. Um, he basically, and the way that I interpret that is that Paul, as a follower of Christ, willfully laid down his life for the service of the Lord and all the risk and all the danger, and he did it, and it, it was his joy, and he considered it a badge of honor to be a prisoner for the Lord. He was a prisoner for the Lord, and we've gone over this in the previous chapter. Look at the word urge. Urge. Urge is parakaleo in Greek, and it basically means to plea with, and, and, and it even has a stronger thing to it in that it can mean to beg. Urge means to plea with, urge means to beg, is what it means here. So instantly we realize that Paul was not making or about to make suggestions. He was not saying here... Um, Oh, by the way, there's some things that could help your life. I would suggest that maybe you do the next things that I'm going to talk about. It would be a good idea. It would be beneficial to your marriage and to your family and to your life and to your community. It, what he's not doing here is, is simply suggesting. He's not about to suggest some things here. He, he's urging, he's pleading with, he's, he's begging for their attention and urging them to do exactly what he's about to say here. So this isn't like, well, it's a good idea. It's, it's, it's explicit. There's a command here. It's, it's an imperative. There's things in the Scriptures called imperatives. They're commands. They're, they're, they're required of us. And that's exactly where he's headed here. And how often it is that we begin to see this stuff and we say, well, that sounds like a good idea. I could do this or I could do that, but I could leave this out or I could leave that out. That's typically how we come to the Scripture. And there's no room for that interpretation here. It's, it's, it's urged, it's commanded. And what is it that he was urging them or begging them to do, right? He's not giving them a list of options. He's saying, this is what you must do. To do what? To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that calling has been illustrated in chapters 1, 2, and 3. 
God called them to election, to predestination, to salvation, to acceptance, to an inheritance, to Christ, to all of these things. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called is really the general description for how every Christian is to live. That's a generic statement that applies to every single follower of Christ, every disciple. We all are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Every Christian is to do that. Now Paul provides specifics in the next two verses, right? He kind of breaks it down. He doesn't just end with the general. He gives some specific ways that they are to do this or the ways that they were doing it. But we're going to camp here just for a moment before we move into those next verses. I want you to look at some of the key words used in our verse. Walk. Walk. Walk is frequently used in the New Testament to refer to daily conduct. To daily conduct. To to day-by-day living. And it is the theme for the last three chapters of Ephesians. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 in Ephesians are about walking in a worthy manner in accordance with our calling. That's what 4, 5, and 6... Chapters 1, 2, and 3 have to do with our calling. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 have to do with how we walk in a manner worthy of that calling. That's exactly how this book is laid out. Or as I like to put it, 4, 5, and 6 are about Christian living, which is kind of a popular term today. Another word to notice there is worthy. Worthy. Worthy is really, really cool because it refers to the balancing of scales. We're all familiar with a scale, right? Especially, you know, the old days when they used to weigh things out, weights and measures. You know, we didn't have, they didn't have certain things back in the old days. And so if they were going to do something, they would put something on one end and they'd give them a counterweight on one end and then the item on the other. But think of a scale. You know, think of a scale. That's what worthy refers to. In order for a scale to be balanced, what must you have? An equal amount of weight on both sides, right? right? If you have too much weight on one side, it goes bam! If you have too much weight on the other side, it goes bam! Right? In order for a scale to be balanced, you have to have an equal amount of material or weight on each side. The idea here in this text is that on one side of the scale, you have the Christian's calling. And on the other side of the scale, you have the Christian's living. So you have the calling and you have the living. Okay? Now, our walking should correspond with or be in balance with our calling. Okay? Now, I realize very quickly that the calling on a Christian's life is very, very heavy. It's very weighty, right? We would all testify to that. We're called by a holy, perfect God. We still have this flesh that we deal with. It's very tough at times to live in this, this way that he's saying here. But, but what Paul is actually saying is, and Paul is fully aware of our possibilities or our potential in the Holy Spirit. He knows that the calling outweighs our ability to walk it out, to live it out. He realizes that, but what he's saying here is that this is what we aim for. We aim for balance in our life. The calling is weighty, but our call to walk it is weighty as well. And so 
The true Christian actually looks at this and doesn't say, well, the calling's so heavy I can never do it, so I won't even try, so the calling will be pinned to the floor while my walking is way up here and obsolete. The Christian doesn't say that. The Christian says, I have a high calling on my life, and I must walk in a way that is worthy of that calling. And so his life, her life, is about balance. I have a high calling. I want to have high walking. That's what he's saying here. I need balance. I need to live a balanced life. And it really the true desire, the heart and, and desire of the true Christian is to walk a balanced life. It is to not look at the calling and say, that's impossible, I won't try. It's to look at the high calling and say, I want to glorify my God. He's called me to greatness and glory. And I'm going to spend my life trying to live in balance and to walk in a way that is worthy of my calling. That is the heart of the true Christian. So he's not intimidated by the scale. He's not afraid of it. He realizes that God is beyond and the calling's high. But he says to himself, he has called me to something so magnificent and awesome and he is, he is worthy of my walking in my life. My calling is worthy of it. And so I want to do my very best to walk in such a way that is worthy of my calling. That's what he says. But you see, the trouble in the church today is that there are many who claim to be Christian, but the balance is so far off. Ping! It's just jammed. The calling, it's, it's like there's, no, there's not even an attempt to bring balance and to walk in such a way that is worthy of their calling by some who claim to be Christian. This is huge in the church today. You know, righteousness is not important to some. Holiness is not important to some. And, and, and some, they profess Christ, and they, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ, and yet they engage in all sorts of sinful activity. They engage in debauchery and drunkenness and sexual immorality and so on and so forth. In fact, the only thing... The only spiritual thing that people like this actually care about and proclaim is grace. That's all they ever talk about. Well, I just kind of keep doing what I'm doing. Grace. Well, it's just, you know, the scale and I just can't do it. Grace. That's what they're all, they're so fascinated. They're obsessed with grace. And somehow they think that grace, you know, grace is tolerant of this behavior. I'd like to submit to you that those who think this way know nothing of grace. Nothing. If this is the way you think, and you, you say, well, I'm, I'm a, I, I prayed a prayer, and I follow Jesus, and, and all that, and, and grace is big to me, because that's true for all of us believers, but, but you don't care about righteousness, you don't care about holiness, you're not conscientious about how God might feel about your lifestyle, whether you're honoring Him or dishonoring Him, you don't have any conviction, then you know nothing of grace. You've got grace, but it's worldly grace. It's a concoction that's made up by the devil. Makes it sound Christian, but it's really not. Because grace is saving grace. It comes with, it comes with power and a new identity. You're a new creation. You long for righteousness and holiness. Balance matters. Your high calling matters. Your high living matters. See, that's the reality that we're dealing with here. So, so just please understand that there's a lot of false stuff out there and a lot of false people saying certain things. And I'll just tell you, they just don't know grace. 
Well, what do we do? We hate them? No. We proclaim the gospel to them. It's a big problem in the church today. Well, yeah, I love Jesus, yeah. And I, I, I like all this other stuff too. Grace! No, you don't understand grace. How sad. Notice also the word calling. Calling, obviously, has to do with salvation. Calling has to do with salvation. God has called us to salvation, Romans 8, 30. Paul's point by saying calling is that saved people are to live like saved people. People who are called will live like called people. The the calling has a direct impact. The true saving calling of God is illustrated in Romans. It has a direct impact on the person. It's not just something they hear. It's something that they hear, receive. It's transformative. The calling comes with the dunamis power of God. It's an effectual calling. Don't get it misunderstood. There's a lot of gospel calling out there in a general sense. But, but you know, every, the calling goes out to many, but few are actually really called in the true sense in an effectual way. But what you need to understand is that this calling of God is effectual. It has power with it. It calls someone out of the current mode of living into a new mode of living. The life changes. Calling has to do with salvation. Salvation has to do with us being conformed to the image of Christ, becoming new people. Essentially what Paul is doing here is he's urging urging the Ephesians to, they've been called to act and to live like called people. They've been saved. This has been illustrated in chapter 1, chapter 2. To live like saved people. The person who is truly saved will live like a saved person. And what does that look like? Jesus. It's going to look like Jesus. It's going to look like what he begins to illustrate in the next couple of verses. Interestingly, Paul wrote the same thing, basically, he wrote the same thing. Verse 1 there, he wrote the same thing to the Philippians. He wrote the same thing to the Colossians. He wrote the same thing to the Thessalonians. Why? Because they're all Gentiles. These are Roman provinces. Greco-Roman provinces. These are places where you had people that weren't Jewish, that don't understand or comprehend any of these things. And so he, he wrote the same thing to them. Philippians 1.27, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He said the same thing. Colossians 1, 9 to 10, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Same thing. 1 Thessalonians 2, 12, Ronnie read it earlier. We exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to do what? to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you listen who's call you could say who has called you who has called you into his own kingdom and glory it's because he's done that that we walk in a worthy manner he said the same thing to these other churches that he planted these other believers 
I'm so thankful that he did because this is a great reminder for us. It applies to us just as it applied to those ancient Christians. Moving on, verses 2 and 3, Paul describes the characteristics of a believer who walks in a manner worthy of their calling. He identifies four things about them. We could categorize these things under Christianity 101. I mean, literally, these are the basics, guys. These are the rock-bottom basics. They are the very basics of Christian living. In fact, it's an interesting thing that I discovered at the end of writing this sermon, which almost caused me to rewrite the entire sermon. I did not realize this. And then something, you know, the Holy Spirit just prompted something in my memory. The things that Paul illustrates here, Jesus illustrated in the Beatitudes. What was Jesus doing? Telling people what they must do? No, he was in the Beatitudes. You know what Jesus did? He broke down verse by verse what a true follower of his looks like. There's nothing evangelistic about that text. That text has to do with a true follower of mine looks like this. They, they walk in a manner, they walk in a worthy manner of their high calling. And this is what it looks like. That's essentially what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. I guess it's evangelistic, but I don't know. I just thought, man, look at these parallels. So I'm going to kind of touch on those a little bit as we move forward. Let's look at them. Number one, all humility. Right? Verse two, all humility. It's the first thing. The believer, now listen, the believer who is characterized by all humility is the one who is walking in a worthy manner. It's not that the person who walks in all humility makes himself worthy. It's the opposite of that. The one who is characterized, the believer who is characterized by all humility, he's actually doing exactly what Paul exhorted the Ephesians to do here. He's doing what God calls him to do in light of his high calling. Now on the other side, right, on the other side here, you've got the one who's walking in all humility. On the other side, you have the believer who walks in all pride. And guess what? He doesn't walk in a worthy manner. He walks in a worldly manner. And his life is displeasing to the Lord. Now what is meant by, notice here, Paul, Paul is careful. Paul was, Paul was led by the Holy Spirit when he wrote this stuff. This is, this is like the very voice of God here. This is the very penmanship of God. Notice there how it says all humility. It doesn't just say humility. It says all humility, Right? Paul's point is that every area of the believer's life is to be marked by humility. All humility means all areas of the believer's life is to be marked by humility. The Christian is to be, we could say this, is to be all humble. Not partially humble. Not humble in this area. And not that area. He is to be humble. She is to be humble through and through. In fact, I would say that's the indelible mark of the Christian, of the true Christian, is humility. They will example humility in every aspect of their life. Doesn't mean they do it perfectly at all times, but there is going to be a humility to them. Every area is saturated by it. Now, what is humility? Well, I know what that means. Well, why don't we look at a biblical definition of it here? Right? I think we all have a sense of what it means, but let's look at a biblical definition of it. What did Paul have in mind when he wrote this? 
Well, this whole section that we're looking at today has to do with unity in the church. So it obviously has to do with relationships in how one another treat each other. The exhortation here is to be humble with one another. You be humble, you be humble. The context is, is, is church unity and relationships and fellowship. I mean, that's what he means here. It's, it obviously or ultimately has to do with how we behave and how we treat one another. That's, the, I guess, the application of it. Now, know this. Philippians was written by Paul at about the same time as Ephesians. And it includes a brief description of what a humble person is like. You see how practical this gets? This is very, very likely what Paul had in mind when he wrote Ephesians here because he basically wrote Philippians at the same time. He, 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 tells, he, he tells the Ephesians that, that the person who is walking in a worthy manner is characterized by all humility. And then he, tells, he basically breaks down and tells the Philippians what humility looks like. This is how you do it. Maybe the Ephesians had a leg up on the Philippians and had a better sense of what that meant. And maybe that's why he didn't define it all that much. I don't know. Philippians 2, 3 to 8, Paul, tells, Paul says this. He says that a humble person is one who what? Counts others more significant than himself, who cares about the interests of others, and who emulates Christ, who, during his life on earth, during his incarnation, what did he do? He did not consider himself equal with the Father. He even humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what humility is. That's what the humble believer is. That's what he does. That's how he behaves. That's how he acts. That's how he lives. He counts others more significant than himself. Sean's more important than me. Sean is more significant. I'm going to treat him in such a way that that I, I make sure that that's conveyed. That's not an easy thing to do for any of us, but that is exactly what it is. One who cares about the interest of others. Uh, This has to do with loving thy neighbor as yourself. You see, the humble person, he he is the one, she is the one who considers others more significant. They're talking, I'm not going to interrupt them, I'm going to let them talk. Because what they're saying is important to me. That's humility. They have a need, I want to meet their need. I'm going to humble myself and maybe make a sacrifice so I can meet their need. That's humility. I want to to be like Jesus who who didn't consider himself equal with the Father and Jesus was God. I don't consider myself equal to other men and women. I am less than them. That's what the humble person says. I am the least. Now I know this is like oil and water because it's like, man, that's just not me. Bing! You're called to live with all humility. Don't think of yourself better than others. Take care of others. And act and be like Christ who considered himself lower, who humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. This is so likely what he meant here when he wrote this to the Ephesians especially in this environment where there was some toxicity between Jew and Gentile, where the Jews obviously thought they were superior because of the law and the Gentiles thought they were superior because of their lawlessness. What Paul is saying here is both you guys are striking out. Both of you just bat zero. 
You humble yourself. You humble yourself. He, your Jewish brother is greater than you. Your Gentile sister is greater than you. That's the heart of Christ. That's all humility. That's the attitude. All humility, right? Every area. We should just be... I mean, if we have a humble Savior who laid down His life, wouldn't you think that His followers and believers would also be humble and lay down their lives for others? That's not rocket science. It's what we're called to. Number two, gentleness. Verse two as well. Gentleness. The believer who is characterized by gentleness is the one who is walking in a worthy manner. Another word for gentleness is meekness. Meekness. In fact, gentleness and meekness in the New Testament are derived from the same Greek noun, proutes. Kind of the same thing. Gentleness means to be mild-spirited and self-controlled. That's what it means. It is the opposite. Gentleness is the opposite of vindictiveness or vengeance. It's to be mild-mannered. It's to be mild-spirited. It's to be kind of just gentle and meek, mild. Reminded of what Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 29. What does he say? I am gentle and humble in heart. You know, the all-humble person is going to be gentle. There's even a succession here. Humility produces gentleness and these other things that we're going to talk about. Gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5.23. Gentleness, however, should not be confused with weakness, timidity, indifference, or cowardice. Shouldn't be confused with those things. The word picture here for gentleness is that of, and this is really fascinating, the word picture here that is associated with the word gentleness here in the Greek, it has to do with a beast that has been broken, a wild beast that has been broken and tamed like a wild stallion. The stallion still has its strength and spirit. Still awesome. But its will is under the control of its master. Okay? Gentleness is, MacArthur says, gentleness is power under control. It is power under control. Biblical gentleness is power under the control of God, who is our master. Think of it like that. Now, what did Jesus say about the gentle or meek in Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes? He said, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth, right? What was Jesus doing in the Beatitudes? He was illustrating what the true follower, the one who walks in a worthy manner, how he lives, how she lives her life. They walk in humility. They walk in gentleness. And Jesus just says, man, it's, it's, it's my people who da- do that that are blessed. The gentle person is also capable, this is equally important, is also capable of righteous anger and action. When God's word or name is maligned, profaned, mistaught, Jesus displayed righteous anger in action, right? In the temple when he saw people profaning God there. 
He rebuked those scoundrels and took a whip and drove them right out of the temple? Did he sin by doing this? No. No, 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 no. They were offending God. The temple was a place of prayer, of worship. And these, these people had turned it into typical people like us. You know, we turned it into a strip mall. Ripping each other off on, on items sold to be sacrificed. It was a dreadful thing that had happened. Jesus had not sinned. He was gentle. I can't think of anyone more gentle than Jesus. And yet here we see him filled with righteous, a gentle person filled with righteous indignation, driven to action. What does it say in the Old Testament about him in that very moment? Zeal has consumed me. Zeal for what? God's holiness. God's glory. And he stepped up and did something about it, didn't he? So we can see that a gentle person is not a wimp. But you'll hear that today. Well, gentle just means that when, when that crazy meth freak breaks into your house and holds a gun to you, you just kind of let him do whatever he wants because that's the true meek spirit of Christ. Um, I'm grabbing a bazooka and blowing half my house off. We need to understand there's a difference between there's a difference between like wartime Christianity. I mean, you, you, there's provision in Scripture for us to take action to preserve our own lives and the lives of others. So it doesn't make you non-Jesus-like if you defend yourself in one of these scenarios. But it does make you unlike Jesus if you go out and instigate it. But I, I can't stand the fact that people today there's this great passivity in the church today but you just i just you know the guy was in there and he had a knife and so i let him you know i I couldn't i couldn't i remember having an argument with a pastor one time he was saying well you know i i I wouldn't want to hurt him he's holding a knife to your child's neck and you don't want to hurt him you've misunderstood the scripture friend here's a bazooka that's ridiculous the gentle Christian is not a sissy lala. It is power under control. And that power sometimes need to be, needs to be released in these life-threatening or these God-glorifying moments. And I, I think that I need to be corrected in this area because I work with a bunch of blasphemers and that's all they do is take God's name in vain and I've gotten so used to it I don't even say anything anymore. How many of you work in an environment where that's going on constantly and you just don't really? You're like, eh. Number three, patience. Verse two as well. The believer who is characterized by patience is the one who is walking in a worthy manner. Patience. And how do they display this patience that Paul is talking about? Look at how it continues. It says, through how they, what? Bear with one another in love. Through how they bear with one another in love. Patience here literally means to be long-tempered. It means to have a slow, long fuse with others. Some of us just, you know, we're like the proverb that says, a fool shows his annoyance at once. Soon as somebody offends us, hey, ah! you know, we're right there with the gun pulled. I'm going to kill him. And, and what Paul is exhorting the believers here to do is to have this patience, this long sufferingness to them. 
Sometimes it is actually even translated, patience is translated as long-suffering, long-tempered, long-suffering. It has to do with patiently enduring people's behavior. Right? Well, you just said that we should go after those who blaspheme God. whole different type of thinking here, guys. Righteous indignation. Have at it. Correct them in love. Why would you take his name in vain? It's different. Although we have to endure some of those shenanigans, I suppose, but patience here just has to do with enduring the behavior of people. More importantly, it has to do with extending mercy to them. It has to do with extending forgiveness to others when necessary, just as Christ did to us. Not that it was necessary, but He did to us by sheer grace. Colossians 3.13, that we would forgive others as Christ forgave us. Forgave us. What did Jesus say about those who patiently endure and extend mercy? What did he say about that in Matthew 5? He said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Kind of reminds me of that text that really haunts me, and it says that, you know, if you don't forgive your brother, your Father in heaven won't forgive you. Huh? You know, the whole Christian faith is based on forgiveness. Christians, uh, humility should mark us. Guess what should mark us too? Forgiveness. Extending mercy to those who wrong us or who, to who fail and make mistakes. To those whose behavior falls short of the glory of God. That we extend mercy. That's the big idea here. That's what patience means. It means to extend mercy. I like what MacArthur wrote about this. A really nice section in his commentary. It says... When H.M. Stanley went to Africa in 1871 to find and report on David Livingstone, he spent several months observing the man and his work. Livingstone, Livingstone never spoke to Stanley about spiritual matters, but Livingstone's loving and patient compassion for the African people was beyond Stanley's, this reporter's, comprehension. He watched how he, he just, you know was patient with these people and was proclaiming the gospel to them and trying to love them and serve them. Pretty much blown away by this patience that he was extending to these people. He could not, it says, he could not understand how the missionary could have such love for and patience with the backward pagan people among whom he had so long ministered. Just couldn't get his mind around this guy's behavior. Livingstone literally spent himself in untiring service for those whom he had no reason to love except for Christ's sake. Stanley wrote in his journal, right, observing him. He wrote this in his journal. When I saw the unwearied patience, that unflagging zeal, and those enlightened sons of Africa, I became a Christian at his side, though he never spoke one word to me. Yeah, but an example of how someone modeled the Christian life and faith in terms of patience to the degree in which someone who simply came to write a report about what he was doing, maybe the church had sent him, maybe a news agency had sent him, who knows who sent him, he shows up, takes a report, and he's absolutely, literally blown away by this guy's behavior and, and his patience. Livingstone's patience was winsome. 
Patience is a virtue, isn't it? It certainly isn't easy, is it? Boy, our culture, everything in our culture just screams, Now! Now! Don't wait! You're entitled! Don't, don't extend mercy to those whom hurt you. Vengeance is yours. Our culture is so backwards, and we tend to be backwards. The person who displays patience and mercy walks in a worthy manner. The, pat- the person who endures the shenanigans and foolishness of believers and unbelievers, and who is quick to extend mercy and forgiveness at every offense, that is the one who walks in a worthy manner. That's the one. Yeah, and as you continue to unpack these, we find that we are so much more opposite to these. (laughs) It's like, "Ah, this is a hate calling and really hard. Seek it, right? The target's big. It's got a big bullseye. Shoot for it. That's what he's saying. For unity... Unity, verse 3, the believer who is characterized by what? An eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace is the one who is walking in a worthy manner. Eagerness to maintain denotes a willingness to make peace. So what is Paul actually saying here? What he's saying here is peacemaker. It's the peacemaker who walks in a worthy manner of his high calling. The calling includes an attitude of peacemaking. When you're called by God, the power and the giftedness and these sorts of things come. And obviously they're developed over time as we're sanctified. But part of it, it comes with this peacemaking ability and desire. I think my wife would agree that the great peacemaker in our house is me. And it's usually right after I do something really stupid, destroy everyone. And then I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm terrible. And the scale goes, mm, you know. What did Jesus say about peacemakers in the Beatitudes, right? He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? Sons of God. Those are the believers, man. They don't become believers because they make peace. They make peace because they are believers, because they are the sons of God. Because they are Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. Now, unity there in the text in Greek means to be in agreement. Before there can be an agreement between parties, you have to have the terms of the agreement or something to agree upon, right? You can't just go around making these, these you know, gestures and movements toward unity with people if you don't have something to agree upon. You can't make an agreement without terms. You have to have something to agree upon. And in Christianity, the terms are the non-negotiable core biblical doctrines. They're the basic doctrines of our faith. They're the closed-fisted doctrines, not the ones that are up for debate. They're the things that every Christian must believe, agree with, affirm, and defend. Christians can unite and experience this bond of peace with one another when 
Christians agree upon these doctrines. That's what makes it possible. And incredibly, see what Paul is not doing here is he's not telling the Ephesians to seek unity in a blind manner. Just unify with anyone who says they're a Christian. That would be the stupidest thing you could do. Because many profess, as I said, but don't live it at all. They say they have the calling, but they don't live and act like called people. So how can we unify with them and experience the rich, deep fellowship of the Christian faith with them if they're doing opposite things to what we're doing? Right? So Paul doesn't say, hey, just blindly, just unify. No, 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 no. What he actually does here is he goes on to list seven of these core biblical doctrines in verses 4, 5, and 6. He literally does it. This is what's so phenomenal about this text. That's why it's so practical. The believer who unifies with other believers is the one who walks in a worthy manner. And then he goes on to say, now here's what you must unify on. Here are the very essential things that you must agree upon or you're not even going to get there. That's what he says. Let's look at them quickly. There is one body, verse 4. The one body is the body of Christ, which is the church. I mean, this just obliterates the idea of denominations. Kills it. Well, I like this particular doctrine so much, we're going to call ourselves the Calvinists. Well, Calvin just spun in his grave when you said that. Well, I like this one so much, or I like this way of doing, you know, my ecclesiology, we're going to call ourselves Presbyterians. What did Paul say to people who started doing this in his day? You have one Savior, Jesus Christ. You don't belong to me. Thank God I didn't baptize you people. You'd be going around saying, I'm a Paultite. That's what he said. He rebuked them because they started saying, well, I'm under this guy, and I'm under that guy, and I'm under this guy. No, you're not. You're under Christ. We're all under Christ. There is one body. Now, that doesn't mean that denominations are inherently wicked and they all are going to hell and they're all bad. I can kind of understand why people split up over certain things because people take doctrine and twist it. The devil does. And, and so we have to affirm these doctrines. So we become known as those who affirm these doctrines and we're called Episcopalians. That's a terrible example because that church is almost gone now. It's just gone down the tube. I, I kind of get why we do it. But there is one body. There is only one true body and it is the true church of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of this body, and believers are the members. Catholicism teaches that, that the Pope is the head of the body of Christ on earth. That's what it teaches. Primary doctrine. The Pope is not the head of the church on earth or in heaven. The church has one head. It's Jesus Christ. There's no provision in Scripture for any other head. But the traditions and... Yeah, the Reformation. That's why that happened. Because people went off the deep end doctrinally and started claiming these things and giving this unlimited power to men. There is one body. Christ is the head. Believers are the members of this body. We should never place anyone above Jesus Christ. We should never place anyone at the same level as Jesus Christ. Never! There is no one parallel to Him. Jesus Christ 
purchased with His own blood the body of believers. This church. He bought it. He's not going to share that with anyone. The church is His church. It belongs to Him. It is actually the Father's gift to Him. Every member of this body of the church belongs to Him. We are His possession. We are actually His possession and His inheritance. There's one body. You're not going to join together and unite if you think there's many bodies or different bodies or any of that stuff and there's different heads. This is why we're called Protestants. We protested against the Catholic Church 500 and something years ago because it was claiming something else. You can't unify if you think there's more than one body or there's different heads or any of these things. There's one body, one head, many members. There is one spirit, verse 4. One spirit, verse 4. The one spirit is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity. And I want you to notice this here. This text, uh, these these, um, biblical doctrines lay out the Trinity, and that is a deal breaker you can't unify with Christians who don't, Christians, quote unquote, who don't agree with the Trinity. T.D. Jakes, heretic. Get rid of him. Don't listen to him. He's a oneness Pentecostal. He rejects the Trinity. That is a deal breaker doctrine. Paul illustrates it here in this text. You got the Holy Spirit. You got one Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit, third person of the Holy Trinity. Now, there are many spirits angels, archangels, Satan, the demons. Right? There's a lot of spirits, but there is only one Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates and illuminates us. The Holy Spirit is the one who baptizes believers spiritually, placing them in the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit possesses each Christian. The Holy Spirit is our teacher and instructor. The Holy Spirit is the source of our power, and He enables us to live godly lives. The Holy Spirit seals believers, and His presence guarantees our inheritance, it says back in Ephesians 1 at the end. There's one Spirit. There's one body, there is one spirit, there is one hope, verse 4. The one hope is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the good news that God sent His only begotten Son to live, die, be buried, and rise for us that we could be cleansed, forgiven, and redeemed. There is no hope apart from any other message, from any other gospel. There is only one true gospel. It is the true hope. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not going to be able to unify with others if they think they can get saved another way, if they're putting their hope in something else. D, there is one Lord, verse 5. The one Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. What? The second person of the Holy Trinity. We heard about the Spirit. Here comes Trinity, right? He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He is the one and only Lord. He is the Lord over all, the elect and the reprobate. He is the Lord over all, not just the saved, the unsaved. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only name under heaven by which men shall be saved, it says in Scripture. There's one Lord. Lord Buddha won't do anything for you. Lord Mohammed will not do anything for you. There's one Lord, and He is Jesus Christ. And He must be your Lord if you are truly to be saved. There is one faith, verse 5. 
The one faith is the Christian faith. It's faith in Jesus Christ. This just kills the whole idea of multi-paths to heaven. For the Lord Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him, by grace, through faith. There might be many religions out there, but there is only one true faith. There is only one faith, the Christian faith. And I know that rubs people wrong in this day and age, but they need to get over it. I don't have any problem with the one faith. I only know one Savior, Jesus Christ. And I know what I was before He came into my life. There's one faith, the Christian faith. There's one true religion. Well, it's not a religion, Phil. It's, it's a relationship. I know. F, there is one baptism. Verse 5, the one baptism in view here is water baptism because a little earlier when we were talking about the one Spirit, it is the one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who baptizes each believer into the body of Christ. That's spiritual baptism. Here, Paul has in mind water baptism. Water baptism was extremely important in the early church. Not as a means of salvation, getting baptized doesn't save you. Not as a means to special blessing, but as a testimony of identity with and unity in Jesus Christ. You know, in the early church, salvation and water baptism were inseparable. Today, it's okay. You just get saved and you get baptized whenever you want. Paul is saying, this is, this is in a way, it is a deal breaker. You can't have Christians... People who profess Christ going around preaching against baptism is not important, it's not significant, it doesn't mean anything. For crying out loud, we've been given two ordinances, two sacraments only. The Catholics got 29, we got two. Communion and baptism. It's serious, it's important. We ought to take it as seriously as they did in the first century. The Bible takes it seriously. Every believer of Jesus Christ, every Christian, ought to be baptized to make a public profession of their faith. Don't delay, do it as soon as you can. There's water out front. Just rained the other day. I literally baptized a junior high girl in Dry Creek. She went down, she came up with a pig's head on her head. It was horrible. Like an amoeba went in there, you know? And she was like, there's water, baptize me. Okay. Let's have a quick class. G, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 6, the one true God is the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Father is the Father of all His children, right? We learned about that in Ephesians 3, 14 to 15. And He is over all, through all, and in all. Seven of these close-fisted core doctrines. If we are going to pursue unity and walk in a worthy manner. We've got to agree upon these things and attempt to live them out together and to affirm them together. And the person who does that is walking in a worthy manner. It's only when a believer understands and affirms these core Christian doctrines, and there's more, he or she can pursue unity with one another. 
If there is a disagreement over any of them, we need to try to disciple and bring a person to a knowledge of the truth. We have to work with one another, even those who don't understand maybe the significance of water baptism or these things. We, we need to work with one another and help them understand the Scripture, unfold the Scripture for them so they can understand its significance and importance. After all, the desire of a true believer is to please their God, and these things are going to be important to them. I'm not going to just shrug them off. If a person is not willing to submit to the truth, even to these things that we've illustrated, we're not going to be able to maintain unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace with them. I think ultimately what Paul is pointing to here is true fellowship. You just can't have true fellowship with people who do not believe the Scripture. Even at one point, on one point here, on the close-fisted things. You, see, you can't. You can try. It's kind of futile. Fellowship with people who do not agree with the things that Paul has illustrated here is just impossible. The primary idea here is that we should be eager to pursue unity and peace with others in the body and only divide when absolutely necessary. 